All right. Well, once again, good morning. I always like to start off preaching this way and say I'm excited to preach and, and to be with you here this morning, and I'm excited to just share what God's put on my heart as I've been meditating, reflecting, and, and researching, studying the, the scriptures uh, this past week. So if you weren't here last week, or maybe you haven't been here in a while, we've been going through the book of Mark, and last week we looked at Mark chapter 13, and it was the story that of, of Jesus on the Mount of Olives. He's standing opposite of, that, of the big temple, and he's talking to Peter, to James, to John, to Andrew, and he answers them privately when they ask him about when the destruction of the temple will take place. And Paul Nelson preached and did a great job last week, so I'm not going to uh, go much further than that recap. If you want to listen to it, it's on our church website. It's on our Facebook page as well. Um, so if you are here this morning and you have your Bible, or if you're watching on Facebook Live, good morning to you. But uh, turn to your Bible, to so Mark chapter 14. We'll be hanging out in here for a little bit this morning. And as you're heading there, I want to share with you one of my biggest pet peeves, and I don't want to just sound too negative off the bat, so just bear with me for a little bit. But one of my biggest pet peeves is going to the mall. All right, I don't know why, I just, I, I hate it. It gets me anxious, it gets me nervous, I feel like I get like that adrenaline rush, and I'm like, I don't want to be here. And even growing up, I didn't really hang out there often. Uh, that was usually the hot spot to go if you were a teenager, and usually Friday nights, and, and again, this was Teenage David, so don't judge me on, on what Teenage David did, but I used to call it like Freaky Friday, because that's where all like the kind of scary kids would go and hang out with like the huge mohawks up to like the ceiling, and I was like, that's not for me. Um, but even nowadays, I still don't like going to the mall. I don't call it Freaky Friday anymore, so again, uh, that was back then. But I don't like going, and if I'm there, I'm usually there for just the food court. I usually get my food, and I'm, and I'm out of there. But if I need to be there, I'm on mission, right? If I'm there, I'm like, all right, you could ask Stephanie. I'm like, all right, in and out. We're not stopping at these stores. We're not window looking. We're shopping. We're getting it, and we're leaving. And Stephanie is like, oh, oh, look at that over there. And I'm like, no, stay on mission. Stay on mission. We need to get, be in and out. And I remember going with Stephanie a few years ago, and um, we were going into Macy's. And let me just pause again. One of my bigger pet peeves with the mall are those kiosks that are in the middle of where you walk. Because if you are walking, minding your own business, if you look up for a second and make eye contact with that salesperson, forget it. You're, you are now their prey. And they will literally walk with you and be like, hey, come over here. What are you doing? And you're like, please stop it. Leave me alone. So again, another pet peeve. And as we're going into Macy's, I need to get more cologne because I like to smell good. All right. I, think, I hope most of us like to smell good as well. So I'm going into Macy's now. I never really bought my own cologne, as weird as this sounds. I usually got it as like a Christmas present. So I had no idea what I was doing. All I did was like, hey, I want this. And I gave him like the empty bottle. And again, going through Macy's with Stephanie, you go past the jewelry department and those saleswomen are there and they try to, to lure you in. And you go, you know, the perfume section, even the, the makeup section. And they're just trying to get you there and, and, and you know, take no or not taking no for an answer. So I'm, I'm buying my cologne, and the lady's, like, giving me all these different options. I'm like, I just want this one. So finally, she, she got it for me, and she rang it up, and it was, like, 120 bucks. And I was like, wait a minute. This, this right here is 120 bucks. I was like, did you scan this three times by accident? She's like, no, it's 120 bucks. And I learned the hard way that Calvin Klein is expensive. All right, Calvin Klein is expensive. So why am I bringing this up? Uh, as, as we just read, as, as Keith just read, it was a scripture passage that actually, that was the first time I preached from the pulpit here. I went through that section of scripture. So we're almost full circle now. 
And, and that's just the story of this sinful woman, a prostitute, who's coming before Jesus. He's in the home of Simon the Pharisee, and they're having this public meal. Back then, it was like, a, it was like entertainment to watch people of high status eat. You would watch and not take notes, but just kind of marvel at their conversation. So Jesus and Simon are meeting, and this sinful woman, a prostitute, comes up and pours her perfume at Jesus' feet. And I picked that passage to read because the story that we're going to read today in Mark chapter 14 is very similar. But please hear me, it's totally different. It's a different story, it's a different woman, it's a different crowd, it's a different dinner. So Mark chapter 14, let's read the first two verses and then we'll pause for just a few minutes and then we'll continue reading. So Mark chapter 14 verses 1 and 2. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar or a riot among the people. Now in these first two verses, we learn, I would say, two things. The first is this. We learn where we are in Jesus' ministry. How close is his crucifixion? How close is that cross? And it says in verse 1, it's two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that shows us that it's Wednesday. It's two days before Jesus is crucified. And just an, an explanation, a simple explanation of Passover in case you're unfamiliar with it. I think most of us would be familiar with it. it was a, the Passover was, it was a holiday. It was, it was commemorating the passing over of the homes of the Israelites when they were in slavery in Egypt by the angel of death who killed the firstborn of Egypt. Right? It, was, it was the last plague that, that God gave or, or did to the, Israel, to the Egyptians. And for the Israelites and, and for now the Jewish people, it was a time of remembrance. It was a time of, of joyfully worshiping God and thanking him for their deliverance, thanking him for his mercy, for his grace. So this was a big celebration. And then also there's a, there comes to be this, this other thing called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And I'll be honest with you, usually when I'm reading my Bible, I tend to glance over these. I'm like, oh, cool, Feast of Unleavened Bread. I wonder, you know, what that's all about. I guess it doesn't matter too much. And, and to be honest, I, I tend to do that. I don't know if you really know what, what the Feast of Unleavened Bread is, but this was a feast that took place right after Passover, and it lasted for a week. It was a feast, a feast which, which, which once again commemorated or looked back and remembered the departure of the Israelites from Egypt. You know, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they, they go together. And if you remember, since the children of Israel, since they left Egypt very, very hastily, in a hurry, they didn't have time to wait for their bread to rise. They didn't have time to wait for the, for the leaven to, and that, at, that chemical reaction to take place to make the bread rise, and we call it yeast nowadays. So that very first Passover, they ate bread that was unleavened. So if you have your Bibles, let's actually turn back to Exodus chapter 12, and we'll just read a few verses here. Exodus chapter 12, verses 13 to 20. Exodus 12, 13 to 20. Verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now that's Passover. And now we get to verse 14. This day shall be a memorial day, and you shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever, and you shall keep it a feast. 
Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened for the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Now pause. That's a pretty powerful statement. So God is setting up the feast of unleavened bread. And he's saying there's, there are consequences if you do not do this. Verse 16. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. For you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations from the fourteenth day of the month at evening. You shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened, that person will, again, with this warning, will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. Now going back to Mark 14, that's what's going on or what's going to take place in two days. And again, that's some pretty powerful warnings and, and for the Jewish people, it's important. This, these, this feast and Passover, it is important because God instructed them to observe it. Also throughout scripture, we read the word leaven is used a lot of times as a symbol of sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says this, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Even Jesus in Matthew 16 used this imagery too. He says, Take heed and be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Right? So, so right now in Mark chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, it's two days before the cross, two days before Jesus' crucifixion. The second thing we learn from verse 2 is that there's a plan put in place to try to kill and arrest Jesus. In verse 2, they wanted to arrest him by stealth and kill him, but not during the Passover. The chief priests and the scribes, they knew that the city would be overflowing. The city would be would just have a ton of people celebrating and looking back to the Passover and the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it was estimated by a few uh, people that I researched that there could have been as many as 2 million people in this city. And just so you get an understanding of how many people that is, on, on the island of Manhattan, there's 1.63 million people. So there's more people that was estimated to be in the city during Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was some serious celebration. So also it was believed that there would be many people that would be from the Galilean region, and those were, that was the region where Jesus had a lot of followers. So the chief priests and the scribes, they were afraid that if they would arrest Jesus during this time, one, there'd be a lot of witnesses, but two, the people loved Jesus, and they didn't want to start any riots and have an uproar because they liked their power. They didn't want to cause any problems for the Roman Empire. So they wanted to wait for the people to go back home, for the crowds to be diminishing. And I know I'm getting ahead of myself here a little bit, and I'm going to repeat this in a few minutes, but when did Jesus die? I don't know if you've, if you've done the research, you know the timeline of actually when he died, but he died on Friday on Passover around 3 p.m., which is the exact time they would be slaughtering the Passover lambs for their Passover dinner that day. And the chief priests, they had a plan. Their plan was to do it quietly, do it sneakily when no one was around, wait till after all of these celebrations. 
But God's plan was always the cross. God, in his perfect timing, knew that Jesus would die at that exact moment. The eternal lamb of God would be sacrificed the same time as the Passover lambs. And as I'm reading that, I'm just like, man, God is sovereign. God is amazing. Look at that timing. And it reminds me of, of Job when he came to this conclusion at the end of his book. And uh, last week we did a stay-at-home retreat, and this was one of our, our key verses to show the kids that God is in control and he has a plan. Nothing can come against him. Job says this, I know that you, God, can do all things, and no plan of yours can be thwarted. No one can prevent God's plan from happening because God is God. He's sovereignly in control of all, and he answers to no one. He's above everyone and everything. So let's continue. Mark chapter 14, verses 3 to 11. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over Jesus' head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. Verse 6, But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can go and do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And I'll stop there. And I love verse 9. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed, the memory of what she's done will be told. And that's literally what we're doing right now. And scriptures, again, being fulfilled. Scripture in, in, in God's perfect word is being fulfilled. So right now, Mark puts this story right after verses 1 and 2, which tells us it's two days before Jesus' death. But we know from John's gospel, so this story takes place in the other gospels as well. And from John's gospel, we know that this dinner happened six days before Jesus' crucifixion. So what Mark does is he's setting the stage that they're, they're trying to kill Jesus, and then he takes us back in time and tells us about this dinner with, with Simon the leper at his house. And I think what, why Mark puts this story here is because the rest of his gospel is leading up to the cross. And this dinner, if you look at it, it's really leading up to the death of Jesus. And he points to it a few times in here, and we'll go over that in a few minutes. And like I mentioned before, there's a lot of similarities between what, what I just read and what Keith read earlier. Uh, both of the, the host's name were Simon. I don't know if you caught that. It was Simon the Pharisee, Simon the leper, uh, a, a, a woman, and then another woman, and then perfume was involved in, in these stories. Again, just a lot of similarities, but two separate stories. In verse 3, we see that Jesus is in Simon the leper's house. Now, we can know that this man is no longer a leper because he has a house. He's part of society. If you had leprosy back in Jesus' day, you were kicked out of society. You were an outcast. No one would talk to you or go near you. And that's why the lepers had their own little colony set apart from the rest of the world. And it was really hopeless and lonely to be a leper. So I, I guess we could call him Simon the ex-leper's house. And uh, he's prepared this dinner beforehand. And scripture's not too sure who this guy is and why he's doing this. But I think that we can just kind of glean that there's a good chance that he was probably healed from Jesus. And that Jesus, uh, or I should say, Simon is, is making this meal as a thank you meal for Jesus and to his disciples. So in verse 3, again, we're introduced to this woman. It says, Mark says, a woman. 
again, looking at John's gospel account of the story, he tells us who this woman is. And again, it's believed that John gives us more details in his gospel because he wrote later than Mark. It was believed that Mark's gospel was written about 20 years after Jesus' death. So Mark was being a little bit sensitive to some names of people because they still would be alive. And he was a little, you know, sensitive and, and being nice to them. Uh, whereas John's written much later and he's more like, eh, this is who it was. And he, he tells us bluntly who it is. So in Mark's gospel, this woman is Mary. He names her. This is Mary. And it's Mary whose sister is Martha. It's Mary who's the sister of Lazarus, who, who Jesus raised from the dead. And we're told that they're all there, all those siblings, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. They're here at this dinner with Jesus, with his 12 disciples, and um, also Simon the leper's there because it's his house, and probably some of his family members if he had family. So there's around 17 to 20 people at like a minimum if, if you look at who was here and then the names of people that were mentioned at this dinner which again is different from that dinner or that meal that, that Keith read where there's a crowd of people watching who don't really know Jesus. This is a small, intimate group of people that love Jesus. They know who Jesus is. In verse 3, we read that Mary takes an alabaster flask of ointment or perfume, a pure nard, and she breaks it open and pours it over Jesus' head. And nard's an expensive and, and sort of rare flower that's found in India, and they would import it from India and the fact that Mark calls it pure nard, I think, is to signify and just show us the significance of how much it actually would cost, that it was very costly. He actually says it, it was very costly. <clears throat> so John also adds that she does, Mark says he, she pours it over Jesus' head. And then uh, John adds that she also pours it at his feet and wipes it up with her hair, which again is similar to what Keith read before. And I love what John also adds in his story. He says, the whole house was filled with this fragrance of the perfume. I just, it's like a simple detail that like as he's writing, he's like, oh yeah, the whole house smelled. And it just reminded me of, of growing up Axe body spray. You either love it or hate it, I don't know. But there are some kids, when it first came out, they would take the spray bottle and they would be like this. They'd go... for like five minutes straight, and I remember in like the boys' locker room at, at school, I was like, I gotta get out of here. I can't breathe. So just that example of the whole house is filled with this fragrance of this perfume. She, she literally dumps it all out onto Jesus. So again, Mary's taking her perfume, and I actually bought something that would look similar or as similar as it could, and again, this is a olive and vinegar bottle. So if you go to Italian restaurants, you're like, yeah, I know what this is. But the, the container that this perfume would be in would look similar to this. It would have a really long, skinny neck. And probably the only difference would be, it wouldn't be this tall, but it would be a bigger and more round bottom. So she's taking this alabaster, which is a specialized type of marble. It's a specialized type of stone, which back then was proven to be the best container to store expensive and costly perfume. It would, it would uh, preserve it the best. And she breaks the neck, and I was... I was actually going to take a hammer and break this, but I'm deciding not to. Uh, so just for image sake, we'll just pretend here. I have a towel. It would have been nice, but she, she breaks the bottle, and what does she do? She pours it all. I, I might have put some water in here. She pours it all over Jesus' head and his feet. And again, I'm like, why did she break her bottle? And it was, again, believed that there might have been a small opening that limited the amount of flow that would be... Um, I guess, pour it out if you were to tip it over. Much like, where's my other cologne? Much how these have little sprays so that you don't waste it. 
or you don't go like, oh, I'm going to put a little on, and then you dump it all on your hand, which I've done before, because uh, I thought it had a sprayer, but didn't. But this has a sprayer where you spray it, and it limits what you can do. But it's seen that she breaks the top of it. She breaks it so she can pour it all out onto her Savior, all out onto Jesus. And she anoints him from head to toe, quite literally. Moving on in verse 4 and 5, we read, There were some who said to themselves indignantly, and that word indignant we talked about last time I preached, and it's just a word that means angrily. They were angry. It upset them. And they said, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii, which is a year's worth of salary. It's a lot of money. And it should have been given to the poor. And they scolded her. So Mary, this, these are people Mary knows. These are her friends that she loves, and they're scolding her. And John tells us, again, he gives us the more specific details. Mark is a little more sensitive and nicer. But John tells us that Judas Iscariot was the instigator. And the disciples then followed his lead. So he probably was like, man, could you believe this? Look, look what she's doing. What a waste. And the other disciples might have been like, you're right. He, he's right. Yeah, Mary, what are you doing? How dare you waste it? So Judas is instigating this. And the disciples follow, and they scold their friend Mary. And now if you didn't know Judas, you, and if you're reading the Bible, and you're like, oh, that seems like Judas is trying to help the poor out. It seems like he's trying to be a nice guy. Again, John adds in his gospel and tells you exactly who Judas is. He says this. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charged the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So again, Judas was in charge of the disciples' money. He held on to their finances, and he would embezzle money from them. He would rather have Mary sell her perfume, right, sell it or give it to him and say, here, Judas, sell this and give it to the poor so that he can make his money bag bigger so then he can take more money out. And there's probably a good chance that the disciples and the poor people would have never seen that money. Uh, we can see at the end of this, at this dinner that Judas is already thinking of betraying Jesus. So at this point, he's probably thinking, I want anything and everything I can, and I'm getting out of here. So again, he leads them into scolding Mary for her act of love and devotion to Christ. And I love Jesus' reply. We don't have to guess what it is. Jesus says it in verse 6 and 7. He says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good to them, but you will not always have me. And I love that verse, and I underlined it. She has done a beautiful thing to me. Jesus doesn't join in and scold her. Jesus is defending Mary's actions. She's showing her love, her affection to Jesus, and he welcomes it. He receives it. Jesus also, if you look, he doesn't expose Judas. Jesus knew Judas was going to betray him. He wasn't, if you read the Bible, when, when Judas betrays him, Jesus is like, what? Judas, you, it was you? What are you? You betrayed me? Jesus knew. And he doesn't expose Judas because, again, it's not God's timing. It's not his timing. And Jesus kind of takes a quote from Deuteronomy 15.11, which says, For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. So Jesus is trying to get his disciples to understand that his time is limited. The cross is coming, and it's coming to an end, his life on earth. 
He's not saying to neglect the poor. He's not saying, you know, for this week, just forget about the poor and the needy and just focus on me. That, that's not what he's saying. Because looking back to Deuteronomy, that verse says to care for the needy, care for the poor. That, that's a command to help them. And John MacArthur explained it this way in one of his books. He says, opportunities to minister to the poor are always available. But Jesus would be in their presence for only a limited time. This was not a time for meeting the needs of the poor and the sick. It was a time for sacrificial worship of the one who would soon suffer and be crucified. And also, true worship to Jesus leads us into love to the poor, caring for the needy. Continuing on, verses 8 and 9. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So now Jesus is, is kind of pointing back at the disciples and he's saying, what she's done, her anointing of me, is a symbol of my anticipated death and my, my burial. And there's actually one pastor who preached it this way, and I, as I was doing some research, he said that the same as if you go to a funeral nowadays and there's usually a lot of flowers and bouquets and sometimes even when you lower the casket into the ground, you lay a rose or a few roses in the casket. This is similar to as if Mary gave Jesus the flowers before he died. And she's caring and loving him and saying, this is for you, my Lord. This is for you, my teacher. Jesus says she has done all that she could. Jesus knows that she cannot stop his death, but she anoints him and does everything she can for her Savior while he's alive. Again, it points to his death, which is six days um, later. And I just want to take a moment, take a few minutes to just talk about Mary. Now, this is the same Mary who sat at Jesus' feet. If you remember back in, in Luke chapter 10, she's sitting at Jesus' feet listening to him teach. And he's in Martha and Mary's house. And Martha's going up to Jesus and she's like, Jesus, don't you care? Like, I'm serving. I'm doing all of this. And my sister's not helping. She's sitting here listening to you and I'm doing all this work. Can you, can you tell her to help me? <laughs> and Jesus says, Mary has chosen what is good. He doesn't scold her for listening to him and to listen intently and show love and affection to him. And this is the same Mary who actually sees Jesus heal her brother and bring him back from the dead with just three words. He says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out. And now we're seeing Mary showing Jesus a tribute of her love. She's probably asking Jesus who, who she loves, Jesus who she has a relationship with. They're not strangers. She's asking, what can I do for my Lord what can I do for my teacher that I love, that I've learned so much from? Again, as Martha is busy serving, according to John's gospel, Martha is serving at this dinner as well, Mary is seen anointing Jesus, going up to Jesus' feet. And here we are again, 2,000 years later, talking about it, fulfilling scripture. And as we read these last two verses, I, I wanted to include them, even though it, sto it sort of shifts the story slightly. So verses 10 and 11 of Mark 14. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. So here we see Judas in sharp contrast of Mary, and this is after the dinner. Mary, who, who on the one hand loves Jesus, gives him everything, sacrificial love and devotion, and then we see Judas, who, acting out of hatred, out of selfishness, out of greed, to betray Jesus. And Matthew 26 actually tells us how much money he was given to betray Jesus. Does anybody remember? 
30 pieces of silver. 30. In Exodus 21, 32, we're told what the, the price of a slave's life is worth. Take a guess. 30 pieces of silver. In Zechariah 11, verse 12, we see this, this drama or this story that really depicts this transaction of this betrayal for guess how much? 30 pieces of silver. And I just love, as I was going through God's plan last week with some of the kids at youth group, as I've been preparing for this, I'm like, man, the Bible, God's perfect word, it's, it's a complete full story. Like, there's no contradictions in that, in that sense. And you can go back as early as the second book of the Bible, 30 pieces of silver, and it relates to Jesus' betrayal of 30 pieces of silver. The Sanhedrin and, and the chief priests, they were glad that Judas would betray them. I think for two reasons. One, they can keep their hands clean. But also, having a man on the inside doesn't hurt. It actually helps them. They would know where Jesus is at all times. They would know the best and most sneaky way to find Jesus alone and to, to give him the most unfair, unlawful trial and to execute him. And they had a man on the inside, and they were glad. Again, God's plan was the cross. It was always the cross. Here we see the sovereignty of God. We see that Jesus is arrested. He's tried, and guess what? There's no riot. You know, there is... Uh, uh, okay, I'll, I'll go down this rabbit hole. There's one person that said, I, I, I can't remember who it was, as, as I was doing research, that Satan entered into Judas, and then Judas, or Satan's plan was to cause a riot. Judas wanted to betray Jesus during Passover because Satan did not want Jesus to die on the cross. Satan did not want Jesus to die. So Judas is betraying Jesus, and it's taking place, and instead we see that there's no uproar from the people. Again, this was the worst time in history that Jesus could have been killed, and yet there's no uproar, there's no riots, which the Sanhedrin were afraid of because, again, God had a plan. Not even Satan could come against the cross. Not even Satan, who didn't want Jesus to die, could stop him from dying. God's plan for Jesus was always to die. And again, we see the eternal lamb of God who sacrificed the same time as the Passover lambs that would have been sacrificed for Passover. His plan's not thwarted. And as we tie up this chapter, as we come to a close, I, I really entitled this message, Marks of a True Worshipper, and I really haven't gotten to that until right now. We'll, we'll talk about that. So looking back at Mary's anointing of Jesus, what can we kind of glean from that? What are some implications for us? And I just thought, man, she has a few things that just show that she's a true worshiper of, of Jesus. So marks of a true worshiper, three of them are this. True worshipers lavish love upon Jesus. They lavish love upon Jesus. As Mary lavished Jesus with her perfume, she pours it all out over his head, over his feet. We should show the same affection towards our Savior, towards Jesus. A total surrender, a total sacrificial love of the one who sacrificed everything for us. As Christians, our love for Christ should be the root or be the stem for everything that we do. How we treat others, how we talk, what we post on social media, what we watch, what we listen to, it all should stem from his love. His love transforms us. Ultimately, his love makes us more and more like Jesus. And this question of, is Jesus the first love of your life? Like, just take a moment. Is, is he really? Is he the first love of your life before anything else? Does your love for him overflow and spill out into every other aspect of your life? It should. The Bible's clear. 
True worshipers lavish love upon Jesus. Second is this, true worshipers don't get distracted. Don't get distracted. We see that Mary pours her perfume without care of who's there. And as I'm reading this, I'm thinking she's surrounded by her close friends, by her family, and she's seen doing this, which, again, I'm thinking, man, I'd be a little embarrassed to do this. And I have a hard enough time talking about the Bible to my relatives. I'm like, give me a stranger. I'd much rather tell the stranger about Jesus. But Mary's doing this in the presence of her friends, in the presence of her family. She's not distracted by, well, what are they going to think? Martha's serving over here, and, and Lazarus got raised from dead, and he's having a good time with Jesus. And I, I know Simon was a leper, and he was healed. And, and, and what, no, what, what can I do? Is Jesus going to like this? No, no, no. She, she's on a mission. She goes to Jesus and pours out everything for him. She cares only about Jesus. And does this describe your relationship with Jesus? I think too many times we get distracted either by our fear, by our emotions, and we fall into temptation to, to be quiet and to not tell others about Jesus. It keeps us from evangelizing if we're distracted. As Christians, we're told that we shouldn't care about pleasing this world because guess what? The world's going to hate us. And we know the world's going to hate us because Jesus said, the world has hated me. Satan loves, he loves, loves, loves to distract us. He loves to distract us from God's plan. So we need to keep our eyes fixed on Christ, fixed on the cross, and remember how much we're loved and to draw near to Jesus. Mary doesn't let her possessions even distract her. You know, her, her costly bottle of perfume, which, which cost a whole year's salary, she didn't care. She said, Jesus is worth more to me than this, and she pours it at his feet. True worshipers don't get distracted. The third one is this. True worshipers understand who Jesus is. Mary knows that Jesus is worthy of her affection. She knows Jesus. He's not a stranger. Again, he's worth more than this perfume is to her. And Jesus tells us that she has done what she could for him. And it's, it's a beautiful thing that she has done. She's anointed his body. She gave him the flowers before his death, before his burial. So my question is, do you understand Jesus? Do you truly understand what he did for you? What it cost him? And Ralph preached a few weeks ago, and he said this statement. I, I think I'm getting it right. I might butcher it a little bit. But he said, the more you know God, the more you will love him. Or sorry, the more you know God, the more you will want to worship him. The more you know God, the more you will want to worship him. And I want to change it slightly to this. The more you know Jesus the more you will love him. The more you know who Jesus is, the deeper your love for him will go. And as I've just been reading through the New Testament, reading through the letters that Paul's writing to the churches, I just can't escape this one verse. I don't know if you've ever done this, like you've read and you've highlighted a verse, and you're like, oh, that's pretty interesting. And then over and over again, it's like it doesn't leave your brain. Or like throughout the day or the week, you're like, man, that verse, why does this, why does this keep coming back to me? 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says this to the Corinthian church, which is in disaster. They are divided. He says this to them. The word of the cross is folly. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. When you look at the cross, when you look, I'll, I'll duck down. You know, what, what do you see? What, what comes into your brain? What are you reminded of? If we're in Christ, if we're a part of God's kingdom, we understand the significance of it. It's not a sign of, of punishment or torture. 
it's not a sign of, of, of a Roman ca- brutal capital punishment of, of putting people to death, but rather it's love, it's forgiveness. This is what Paul's saying to the church in, in Corinth. He's saying, the cross means nothing to you if you don't know who Jesus is. It means nothing. It's meaningless without knowing who Jesus is. So if you're here today and you're looking at that cross and you're like, I don't know what it means. What am I supposed to think of when I see the cross? I'm going to tell you. It's a picture of how far God's love goes for us, of how far God is willing to go for you. Jesus Christ, who is God, came down from his throne room in heaven to be part of his creation. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 talks about the humility of Jesus and what he did. Because we are guilty, because we are sinners, because we as sinners, even if we sinned once, we're guilty of death. That's the penalty of sin. We can't come before a holy, eternal, perfect God. We need somebody to do something for us. We can't do it on our own. And here comes Jesus. He dies for us. He lives the perfect life we can't so that we can have a relationship with our holy, eternal, perfect creator, our perfect father. We as guilty sinners can be deemed and seen as righteous in God's eyes only because of Jesus' death on the cross. And we're told by Paul, eternal life is a free gift from God for all those who believe. So we need to repent. That's the first thing. Repent from your sins. Realize that you are a sinner and you are guilty. Something needs to happen and Jesus died and you have to repent from your sins, trust in his death and his resurrection and live in total surrender to him. Again, if you're not in Christ, that cross is meaningless. But to us, as sons and daughters of Christ, it's the power of his perfect love for us and his plan for us. So let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we thank you for what you've done for us. Jesus, we thank you that you knew your mission. You knew that the cross You knew what the cross meant, and you knew that you had to die for us. We thank you, Lord, for your humility and the love that you've shown us through your death and resurrection. Jesus, you alone are worthy of our praise. As this story reminds us, you are worth more to us than anything else in this world. I pray that we're reminded of that this week. I pray that as we can uh, live as a true worshiper, we we just remember that, again, to, to lavish love upon you, to not get distracted, and to understand and remember who you are. Father, we just praise you that you have a perfect plan and no one and nothing can thwart your plan. So we thank you for the love that you show us. And we just pray that this love that we've received, we will just pour out to others. And in your name we pray, amen.